This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today, I am going to talk a little bit about some of the common um, aches and pains of the foot and ankle. And when I was trying to write this talk, I was just thinking about, you know, foot pain. It's, it's kind of one of these things that you know, everyone has foot pain, right? And, you know, I know that if I'm standing on my feet for several hours operating, it hurts. So the tricky thing though, is knowing when that is like, okay, because it's just, you did too much and when that's not okay. So hopefully today I'll be able to share some good information and knowledge so that you can take that back and, and use it in your daily lives. Um, so don't have anything to disclose. So uh, these are some of the places that I've had the privilege of training, but I wanted to highlight one thing. Um, so I did my fellowship at New York, uh, as Dr. Barry mentioned, the hospital for special surgery. So one of the most memorable parts of that fellowship is being able to work with this man, um, Dr. Bill Hamilton. He was actually the orthopedic surgeon for the New York City Ballet, as well as the American Ballet Theater. And um, we were, had the opportunity to be able to work with some of these amazing performers, artists, and really athletes and have a backstage view of what goes on in their lives and how difficult it is to, um, to be a dancer um, and, and really how, how hard they push themselves and their foot and ankle to be able to make things appear really beautiful on the stage. Um, so after my training, I ended up in Chicago for about um, seven to eight years and then um, uh, came to UCSF. I joined in August of 2020. So I've been here for a little over a year and I um, see patients in the city and also in San Mateo. So before I get into kind of the content of what we'll talk about tonight, I just wanted to address a, a, a something that comes up every time I give a talk because um, when I tell you know, other physicians, medical students, and um, that I'm an orthopedic foot and ankle specialist, often uh, they'll say, oh, so you are a podiatrist, right? It's sort of assumed. And so th there's actually a difference. And so, um, you know, there are about 40,000 orthopedic surgeons in the United States, and we all belong to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And so that's sort of our big uh, act, uh, big professional group. And of those 40,000, you have some that are spine specialists, some that are hand specialists, some that are, you know, sports specialists. And only about 2,000 of that 40,000 are actually foot and ankle specialists. So it's a very uh, small percentage and it's a very new subspecialty. And, and that, that accounts for why it's so small. So what that really means is that around the country, there's very few of us uh, in practice. And so I did a quick Google search. So in the Bay Area, which according to Google has almost 8 million people, um, there are only 17 fellowship trained orthopedic foot and ankle specialists. However, there are many, many, many more podiatrists. And one of the things uh, that is slightly different between orthopedic foot and ankle specialists and podiatrists uh, is the breadth of uh, medical training that we have. So I definitely do some very similar surgeries as our, my podiatry colleagues, such as bunions and hammer toes and you know ankles th things. But 
um, orthopedic surgeons usually have much more breadth of um, medical training. So while I focus in the foot angle, I can also operate on the hips, on the knees, on the hand, on the foot, um, you know, elbow, whatever. And so I think that makes us particularly appealing for patients because I can tell you, I have so many patients who I see and, you know, their concern is that, well, I'm here for my foot pain, but do you think it's possible that, you know, my knees and my uh, hips and maybe even my spine that somehow is contributing or maybe triggered or created some of my foot issues. And so that allows us to have a bigger and broader approach to pain and pathology in the foot and ankle. So that's, um, so that makes, that, that makes us a little bit different. Um, so tonight I'm going to co cover a couple of topics from ankle sprains to really common cause of heel pain, plantar fasciitis. And I'll also talk about a, some causes of pain in the front of the foot, as well as an Achilles uh, tendon issues. And these are all really, really common things that I see all the time. So before we get into that, I just want to go over some, you know, terminology. So, um, you know, this portion in blue, I would call sort of the lower leg here in red is the ankle. Uh, the yellow circle is the heel, but it's also called the hind foot. So the back of the foot. And then the blue uh, portion is the middle portion of your foot, oftentimes called the mid foot. And then the purple are your toes and oftentimes we refer, refer to that as the forefoot. And when we look at the foot and the ankle, the major bones is really the, uh, the talus, which is the uh, blue screen here, and then the fibula, which is the violet uh, color. Um, and then the yellow is the talus bone. And then the actual ankle joint is between the uh, tibia and the talus. So between the blue and the yellow bone. And then further down is a bone called the heel bone, which is the calcaneus. And then uh, just uh, over that location, there's another joint, it's called the subtalar joint, often, um, mistaken for, you know, sometimes patients will say that's, that's my ankle, but there's actually two joints in that location. So I'm going to talk about ankle sprains first, because it's super common. And I took this slide from Dr. Barry's talk from last week, but just to go over and remind everyone what the difference between a strain and a sprain is. So a strain is essentially an injury around the muscle and tendon, whereas a sprain is an injury around the ligaments. So here you can see this is an ankle um, or foot, and then there's a ligament that there's a tear in. So when we say ankle sprains, we usually refer to uh, injuries or tears um, in the actual ligaments. So an ankle sprain is uh, commonly known as a rolled ankle. It's very um, frequently happens in sports. And according to the NIH, ankle sprains account for about 40% of all athletic injuries. And the way that it happens is of course, you know, you your, your ankle almost like folds or buckles underneath you. And you can see in the center where there is the, the ligaments that, oops, sorry, um, shows ligaments that are healthy and intact. And then on the right-hand side, you can see after the ankle kind of buckles underneath, uh, you have some tears of some of those ligaments. The, ant, uh, the anterior talofibular ligament, otherwise known as the ATFL, just 
very sounds very complicated. It's just a name for a the most common ligament that's injured after an ankle sprain. So when I see patients in the office after an ankle sprain, this is the one place that almost every single patient has pain. When patients have an ankle sprain, they're usually running. Sometimes they're you know landing from a jump and they you know land on uh, another player's foot. And sometimes they're just walking on some uneven concrete on the sidewalk or just on a branch that they didn't really see. And then the ankle just kind of buckles underneath. They often will have a lot of swelling and pain almost immediately. You know, most patients say, I feel a lot of popping, you know, clicking or snapping right when it happened. And then they can't put any weight on it. And then also most patients will say, right after the entry, I saw this big golf ball just start to get bigger and bigger on the outside of my ankle. And usually that's due to some bleeding from under the skin. And then here in these pictures, you can see that that giant kind of golf ball has resolved, but now you see these black and blue marks and that's kind of the, the bleeding that has um, settled, you know, underneath the skin. So here's some top myth of ankle sprains that I've heard uh, over my years in practice. So, you know, I've heard some patients like, well, I didn't really come see anyone because it happens all the time. And, you know, I, I thought I could just walk it off. And, and that can, is true some of the time, but, you know, if you're someone that has recurrent ankle sprains, probably want to see someone and not just kind of, you know, let it heal on its own. I've also heard patients say, well, you know, the urgent care told me I'd be better in two to three weeks and I'm not. And so what's going on? Is something, is something not healing right? And so what I tell patients when I see them for ankle sprains, for routine ankle sprains, I tell them it will take you about six to eight weeks to get full, almost fully better. Sometimes it can take up to three months to get fully better. And that is still normal. So just that's a really important point because lots of patients are like, oh no, I'm, I'm six weeks out and I still have pain. And I would say, you know, of course, after examining patients that if everything looks okay, I would still say that's pretty normal. Um, another misconception is patients say, well, it hurts. And so I just stopped using it because it was hurting and I didn't want it to do any damage. And, and that definitely is true um, some of the time, but for ankle sprains in general, I always tell patients it's going to hurt. You're probably going to have some level of pain even two months out from an ankle sprain, but that does not mean that you're going to stop moving because if you stop moving, scar tissue sets in and everything gets really stiff and that's way worse. So always encourage patients, you know, with an ankle sprain after some rest, they really do start moving, even if there's a little bit of pain. And then the last um, thing that I hear most frequently for patients who have ankle sprains is they come in, they say the emergency room or their uh, urgent care told me I need to have an MRI to see if I have a ligament injury. And the truth is, as I mentioned, um, if you remember back to the slide, an ankle sprain by definition is an injury of your ligaments. So we already know that you have some injuries to your ligaments. We certainly do not need an MRI um, in that acute setting to, to see if you have it because you do. But the good news is, is that almost all of the patients that have ankle sprains really do heal and they do quite well. So when I see a patient in the office with an ankle sprain, I like to do x-rays, three views, complete x-rays of the ankle. And the reason is because 
Um, a lot of times you just can't tell when patients come in and they roll their ankle, sprained their ankle a couple of days ago. It's so puffy. It's so swollen and so tender. I can't tell if there is a fracture. So I always get x-rays. Um, and then I always like patients to be standing on them if at all possible, just to put a little bit of pressure that allows us to get more standard views of the ankle. And sometimes patients will say, well, I already got x-rays. And, and I always tell them, well, the x-rays are not standing. There's a lot of weird rotation that's in there. So we really can't see everything the way we'd like to. So we sometimes repeat them. Um, so when you have an ankle sprain, the treatment of choice is, of course, RICE. And everyone knows that stands for rest, ice, compression, and elevation. And I really love this type of boot. Um, I put my ankle sprains in this all the time. I feel that it really gives them a good uh, supportive environment, you know, to kind of allow patients to get around and walk and allows them not to use crutches, which makes a huge difference because I see patients hobbling in on crutches and they say, you know, I, I can't use these crutches. Can I start walking on this? And, you know, it makes their life so much easier when they have a boot that's really supportive for the ankle, but also, you know, you can let them walk on it. Um, so I usually have patients in a boot like that for about two weeks, and it really allows the ankle to rest and allows the ligaments to kind of start to scar down and to uh, heal. And then usually after two weeks, I have patients start some formal physical therapy, and we focus on something called functional rehab. So functional rehab is a series of just exercises of, you know, moving your ankle, of uh, stretching, of also strengthening and building uh, strength in those muscles, all to avoid the harmful effects of immobilization. And this is really important because I have definitely seen patients come in and there's six weeks, you know, uh, seven weeks, almost two months, and they're still in the boot and they tell me, well, you know, I had pain. So I just thought I would just stay in the boot. And that's definitely not what we want to hear. Um, when you have an ankle sprain, you know, we have these goals and we want to constantly be moving and hitting these goals. So you don't want to just kind of be sitting around in a boot for weeks and weeks and not really feel like you're getting better. I tell patients that by about six to eight weeks, they are able to return to most full activities. However, this does not mean that you're pain-free. So this is really important to kind of set those expectations of saying you can do things, but it still might be painful and that's normal. And maybe you're able to do things the, at the level that you were able to do before. And that's again, very normal. Uh, my take-home point in these ankle sprains is really that if you or your friend or family member has had an ankle sprain, by two weeks, you should be able to be, uh, get out of the boot and start having someone touch the ankle, move the ankle, and actually be participating fully in physical therapy. Or by about four weeks, you should be pretty good. Being able to get back to everything, you're not in the boot anymore. If you don't hit these goals, then that's when I think it's worthwhile to maybe talk to your primary care doctor and consider a referral to a specialist. The good news though, is that 97, 98% of patients with routine ankle sprains all get better and very, very few don't get better. And even fewer might actually need some sort of surgery later on. So overall, it's really nothing to worry about. So I'm gonna move on to heel pain. 
And this is something that I'm sure everyone has experienced at some point in their lives. Um, I know I have when I was pregnant, I had really bad heel pain, which ended up being plantar fasciitis. So what is plantar fasciitis? So the plantar fascia is this really thick structure on the bottom of our foot, and it's responsible for actually creating the arch in our foot. And when it is too tight, it'll actually cause a lot of pain. And sometimes it's like really sharp stabbing pain, like someone's poking you with a hot poker. And it's really common in runners. Um, it's common in patients who are, you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then the heavier you are, the more likely you're going to have this type of heel pain. Currently, we don't know whether it, you know, exactly what it's due to, whether it's inflammation or degeneration or a combination of both. We do know that when you have too much pressure on it, so when you're carrying a little bit more weight, it can actually cause this tissue, this red structure here to start like tearing. So really small micro tears. And then those micro tears, then your body tries to heal by forming some scar tissue. And now you've got this kind of tight, thickened scar tissue on your heel that you walk on. So that, that certainly can contribute to the pain. So as I mentioned previously, you, you can see that in, in these pictures here that thick uh, tissue in the bottom is called the plantar fascia. So just underneath it, or just um, you know, uh, one layer closer to the floor is what we call the fat pad of the heel. And as you can see in this picture here, the fat pad has this like honey, honeycomb um, compartment type of organization. And so there's fat lobules all compartmentalized in, in these little honeycomb uh, structures. And the goal is that when you're putting pressure down on your heel, which we all do millions and millions of times every day or every week or month, um, the, the fat pad is there to actually cushion the area. And so when we're in our 40s and we start to get a little bit older, the fat actually starts to thin and they really atrophy. And that leads to a little bit less protection over the area. And then again, this is what can contribute to little small tears and thus some pain. So patients who have uh, plantar fasciitis usually will present with very localized sharp pain in the bottom of the heel they usually have one specific spot. So when I'm examining them, I'm pushing and I find this one spot, it makes them jump out of the exam, um, their examining uh, table. And so that's really common. And a really classic story uh, that patients have with plantar fasciitis will say they have pain when they first get out of bed in the morning. So the first 10 to 15 steps is really bad. They're holding onto the wall, they're, they're, you know, just trying to take pressure off of their heel. And then usually after about 15 steps, they definitely feel better. Um, also, sometimes I'll, I'll ask patients, when you go for a long drive, and you're driving your car for 45 minutes, and when you get out of the car, do you have pain? And a lot of them will say, yes, yes, you know, that first 10 steps is really sharp. So that's really, really classic for plantar fasciitis. But you know, if you don't have those, it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have plantar fasciitis. But if you do, it's it's a good sign that you 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 know you probably have this condition. The most important important thing to remember is that you don't have any pain at night. So you go to sleep, you're able to get a good night's rest and wake up the next day with no pain that wakes you up. 
And then unfortunately, up to a third of these uh, cases will actually have pain in both heels, which can be pretty debilitating. So there are some common causes of uh, this condition. And so one of the causes, as I mentioned previously, was that this, this tissue is just so tight. Um, so one of the other things is when you have a tight calf muscle or a tight Achilles, it can also lead to a really tight plantar fascia. And so that will make this, uh, the, the tissue kind of start to tear a little bit because it's so tight. Um, also repetitive activities. So runners um, you will know, we'll, we'll have pain um, and have this condition because they're constantly putting repetitive pressure on, on, and stress on the bottom. And then also um, sometimes new activities and it doesn't have to even be a high impact activity. You're just doing something new um, and that, that can cause uh, you know, pain and plantar fasciitis as well. And then lastly, I have down here um, flat foot or fallen arches. So sometimes that the arches are a little bit flat, you actually um, will stretch this tissue on the bottom because as I mentioned, this tissue is there to give you the arch. But if your arch is really kind of flattening, you're stretching and stretching this tight tissue, it will cause pain. One of the um, common uh, misconceptions of this condition is this idea of this heel spur. So lots of patients will come in, they'll say, you know, I, I have a heel spur. I think that's what's causing my pain. And so the heel spur you can see in this x-ray definitely looks pretty bad. It's large, it's pretty sharp, it, it looks painful. But the important thing to remember is that um, in patients who have heel pain due to plantar fasciitis, only half of them actually have a visible heel spur. The other half don't. The other half have perfectly normal looking bone. And so what that means is that the presence of this heel spur or this kind of sharp, jagged bone that appears very painful, that's actually not the cause of the pain. I've had patients come in and say, well, can you just shave off my bone spur? Because they think that's going to make me feel better. And we generally don't do that because the bone itself is not the cause. The cause is actually that tight tissue that attaches there. So how do we treat plantar fasciitis? The non-surgical or conservative treatments are definitely the main uh, the mainstay of treatment. So that would include using, you know, Advil, sometimes um, some stronger prescription anti-inflammatories can be really helpful. Also um, orthotics, which are kind of the cushions, right, that you can put um, in your shoe. And I always get asked, well, should I get custom orthotics or should I just, you know, go to the drugstore and buy orthotics? So um, the, the answer is really, it doesn't really make a difference whether you spend you know, $500 on custom orthotics or just kind of get the off the shelf ones. Um, because really for most patients with this condition, we're really using that orthotic as a cushion for the heel. So you don't really need to spend lots of money to get that you know, cushion, right? You can get a pretty good one you know, at the drugstore or oftentimes I refer a lot of patients that go on Amazon and buy them. Um, also patients will ask me, well, my friend had this problem and they were told they should use this night, use this night splint. And um, I definitely did have, did use this previously, but um, it, it's really difficult and uncomfortable um, to use because the splint, essentially you put it on at night and the whole idea is it kind of 
brings your foot back and kind of holds it there, right? Stretching your calf, stretching your Achilles. And it's really uncomfortable at night. And most patients say, well, I always put it on, but in the middle of the night, I end up just kicking it off, right? So I, I sometimes don't even bother mentioning this because it's, it's so uncomfortable. And I feel like it's probably better to just get a good night's rest rather than try to fiddle with this thing that um, you'll probably just take off anyway. <laughs> Um, so the most important thing for plantar fasciitis is uh, stretching. So it's a lot of physical therapy. So it's really stretching of the actual tissue itself, which is in the uh, uh, photos here. So actually stretching uh, the plantar fascia. You can also roll a tennis ball. You can roll a golf ball, uh, anything underneath the heel to really, uh, to really kind of stretch and, and massage uh, the tissue. And then the other thing is stretching your calf muscles and your Achilles is really important as well. So ideally you would, you know, do the stretches of the plantar fascia plus your Achilles, your gastroc as well. And those are all going to definitely make the pain better. And I think that the literature actually shows that if you just do simply this, 98% um, of patients will get better. So that's pretty good odds. So let's say you're someone that's done a lot of the therapy and, and you haven't gotten better. You know, what do you do now? So usually um, when patients come in to see me, I will offer them a cortisone injection. Um, some patients will say, well, why can't you just do the injection now? You know, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm here today. Can you just do it? And my answer is sure, I can definitely do it. But if you just rely on the cortisone injections alone, they're only good for short-term relief. So you may only have relief for two weeks or three weeks. Whereas if you do it the other way of like doing the stretching and putting in the work of physical therapy, and then you come for the injections, you are much more likely to have much longer term relief. So I always recommend doing the therapy first and then if needed, a small cortisone injection. There's been some studies out there about Botox, as well as PRP, which is kind of, you know, the stem cell uh, biologic type of injections to help plantar fasciitis. And I think some of the uh, high level studies out there essentially show that there is really no difference of injecting these fancy you know, medications or stem cell type of things compared to cortisone. They do equally well, but certainly there's uh, room for further studies. Um, and so because of this, I normally just do cortisone injections in the office. I have not done any um, stem cells, although we do have a, a biologic regenerative service at UCSF. So if you're interested, um, certainly that would be something we can refer you to. So surgery for plantar fasciitis is really, truly the very last resort. I try to do everything in my power to have patients get better and avoid surgery because traditionally the open surgery, which is, as I mentioned, this tissue is too tight, right? So the surgery is actually just kind of making a little cut in this fascia to like suddenly like relax that uh, tissue. So the, the results aren't really very good. And, you know, some say, you know, 50%, I mean, 50 is 50% is like, you know, coin toss. Um, some uh, say as high as 75%, but regardless, no matter how you look at it, you know, you, if you're going to have surgery, you want to know that the odds are a little bit better than 50 to 
And so for this reason of a lot of failures and continued pain, we generally have not done a lot of these open releases. And one thing that has come out in the last maybe five or seven years is a new procedure called the 10X procedure. So it's a more minimally invasive percutaneous procedure where it allows the fascia to be cut. And so this is a a machine that we use and it uses ultrasonic energy to remove the scar tissue without really damaging the good tissue, but it's done through a very, very tiny incision, maybe five millimeters, definitely less than a centimeter. And um, because it's minimally invasive, there is not as much scar tissue that forms in the area after the procedure. And, you know, this study uh, done by Dr. Patel, but, you know, only on 12 patients show that 90% of patients at three months felt better. I I would say in my own practice, I uh, feel like it's probably not 90, it's maybe like 80 or something, but it definitely uh, patients feel better. And I'm always really careful to say that this isn't like this magic wand that you're going to get rid of all of your pain. But I would say to expect, you know, good 70% pain relief is, is very reasonable with this procedure. Okay. So moving on to metatarsalgia, it's a very big word. Um, so what is it? So it's, it's a, it's a catch-all word. So when I say someone has metatarsalgia, it's not specifically a diagnosis. It's just saying, that this patient has pain in the ball of their feet. So in the front of their foot, it could be due to bones. It could be due to tendons or anything. So it's a kind of a a broad uh, catch-all that um, can have any really cause to it. So when we talk about your foot, you can see a diagram of a foot and there's lots of bones here. Each bone or each ray, as we call it, or toe has a metatarsal bone, has a a proximal phalanx bone and a distal, uh, you know, middle phalanx, distal phalanx. And the metatarsal, as I, I drew it out here in the red, they have this nice cascade. So the first metatarsal is the biggest bone. It's supposed to carry most of the weight. The second metatarsal is a little bit smaller and it's a little bit shorter third metatarsal, also a little bit smaller, a little bit shorter, and it has a nice cascade. So sometimes based on our own anatomies, sometimes patients are born with, um, I'm sure, you know, when I look at my toes, like my second toe is a lot longer than my big toe, right? And that, so that type of a difference can certainly cause um, pain uh, in, in the foot. And so, a bony anatomy can be a cause, but also all the nerves and blood vessels can be a cause of pain, as well as all the muscles and tendons, of which there are many on your foot that all contribute to pain. So here's an x-ray of a patient who has this long second metatarsal. So you can see the, the red dot or the red line here, and that's where the second metatarsal is, but then the first is here. So this, this person has a much longer second metatarsal bone. So when they're walking and they're, you know, um, push off, you know, kind of toe off, they're going to be focusing all of their pressure on this area. So this person perhaps would be more likely to have pain on the ball of their feet over here, because this is a much longer bone than the first, uh, first metatarsal. Other causes of pain in the ball of your foot 
it can include a really tight Achilles because the function of the Achilles is really to push the forefoot into the ground to kind of push you off into the next step. And so if the Achilles tendon is really, really tight, think you're thinking when you're walking, you're really hitting the ball of your foot into the ground. You're kind of hitting it so hard. Um, and so you're putting lots and lots of pressure there. And that is a really common cause of pain. And so sometimes the solution to pain in your foot is actually to stretch your Achilles. Because if you stretch your Achilles, you won't have, have as much pressure on the ball of your foot and you'll have less pain. Another thing is when you have really tight Achilles and there's more and more pressure, that is one way you can develop a bunion, right? Because if you're pushing so hard and almost you're hitting the ball of your foot into the ground every step you take, you're going to cause the bones to start shifting. So a bunion is here where you see this bone, which is the first metatarsal. It's really leaning out to the, you know, in the wrong direction. And this is a pretty bad bunion. So again, so for prevention of bunions, sometimes they'll say, well, you know, one thing you could do is to start stretching your Achilles tendon. Other causes um, are shoe wear. I, I couldn't resist putting this um, x-ray in here because I am a big shoe fan and I have lots of shoes. <laughs> um, but as you can see, this is normal. So, you know, when you're standing, the whole bottom of your foot is on the ground. That's what is the weight bearing portion. But when you wear your high heels, which is, you know, three or four inches, you're basically focusing all of that stress on the bottom of the big, uh, on the foot. And so, so obviously you can see that that would cause pain in the bottom of your foot. Um, another cause is wearing shoes that are pretty narrow. So we call it, you know, narrow toe box shoes. So again, this, um, you can see this person barefoot and you can see how wide their foot is, but then they wear uh, shoes, uh, you know, women's shoes usually, uh, and they're much more pointy. And so you can see it really compresses all the metatarsals and that can be a very obvious reason for pain. Um, Another cause for pain is the nerves. And so in this diagram, you can see the, the white are the bone, so uh, the metatarsal, and then the yellow is the, the nerves. So they, they uh, live right in between the metatarsals. And so when you wear shoes that are really tight, it kind of pushes the metatarsals together. And you can imagine those, the, the nerves really get squished between the metatarsals, and then that can cause pain. Sometimes it can cause numbness, tingling. Um, and one common thing is sometimes patients will say, I keep thinking that I, like, I have something in my shoe, like there's pebbles or marbles in my shoe, and I keep taking my shoe off and there's nothing there. So that's a really common uh, presentation when patients say that, I always think of okay, maybe they have they have a neuroma. So when you have a uh, really tight Achilles, as I mentioned, we really encourage patients to start stretching, and so physical therapy is really important. When you have a patient who has a long second metatarsal, you can't change that about them; it's their anatomy. So oftentimes, what we'll do is we'll use these pads, or called metatarsal pads. We put them on the bottom of their foot. And the idea is that when you're standing, the pressure doesn't go into the ball of the foot, which is what's marked out in the marker here, but the pressure actually goes into this pad, almost 
it transfers the pressure from the ball of the foot into almost the arch of the foot. And that can really uh, give patients relief. And this is not something you wear forever, but you know, temporarily while things get settled down, then you can go back to wearing regular shoes. Um, and then lastly, with bunions, uh, lots of patients have them come in because of them. And the most common question that I hear asked is I have bunions. Should I, when should I get them fixed or do I need to get them fixed? And it's, you know, difficult question, but one thing that I will say is that when you have bunions in general, they are progressive, which means once you get them, they will start to get worse, but they could take 20 years to get worse, or they can suddenly worsen in, you know, eight months. And that's where we don't really know. So we always want to be monitoring it and looking, you know, looking at your foot. One of the things that we can do as a conservative option for bunions is, of course, to wear wider shoes, right? Most patients who come in to see me with bunions, they've already tried that. Another thing that you can do is use these toe spacers. So between the first and second toe, that's really helpful. And then on the market, you can find all sorts of uh, bunion splints or, you know, shoes or socks or whatever for bunions. And the reality is that none of these things work. I mean, you can certainly use them, but they probably is not going to make a difference in the long run because your bunion will get worse. Um, but if it takes a long time to get worse, then great, you're lucky. You probably don't need to have surgery. But if it gets worse pretty quickly and it starts to actually limit your lifestyle, say you're very active and you're not doing a lot of things you want to do because your bunion hurts so much, that's when you decide that it is time for surgery. And when you need to have surgery, there's so many different procedures that can be done to fix the bunion. I think there's technically several hundred different procedures, but in general, there's a few uh, ones that we use most of the time. So you can see in this before and after x-ray the, the the bunion has been fixed but you can see the screws are over here whereas this next one you can see again bunion was fixed and the screws are further in this bone so this is where obviously a specialist will be able to help make that decision as to which is the better option for you and then if you have an aroma which i mentioned is kind of that nerve that's being pinched most of the time we do treat this conservatively with anti-inflammatories wider shoes. Uh, cortical steroid injections work really well, and I definitely have done them. And for me, I, I feel they, they work extremely well to the point that I rarely have to do surgery on the neuromas. But the ones who don't work will often just go in there and cut out the nerve. I know it sounds kind of barbaric to remove the nerve, but um, sometimes it's the only solution. So you just have to remove the nerve. You can see the, the center picture is just a specimen of something of a nerve that was very swollen and inflamed that was removed. So I'm going to move on to Achilles tendonitis, which is uh, the last topic. And it's, again, super common. I see this all the time, regardless of how young or old you are. Um, I see it almost daily. So the Achilles tendon is one of the largest tendon in your body, and uh, it is in the back of your leg, and it inserts on the bone, which is called the calcaneus, so essentially the heel bone. Um, the Achilles tendon has a small area that doesn't have very good blood supply, so we call it the watershed area, and that's about maybe six centimeters uh, up from where it goes into your heel. 
And that's also why when patients tear their Achilles, they almost always tear at that section because that just doesn't have as much blood supply. So it's always torn there. The Achilles tendon, because it is the biggest tendon in your body, it does uh, encounter stresses that are six to 10 times your body weight. So it encounters a tremendous amount of stress uh, in the area. So that when you have tendonitis, which is just an inflammation and sometimes very small micro tears of the tendon, it is a really common cause of pain in the back of the heel. And when you have Achilles tendonitis, you can have something called insertional tendonitis, which is in the picture on the right, where you can see this bump right at the bottom where the heel is. And then you can have non-insertional tendonitis, which is tendonitis further up along the, the path of the tendon itself. And both of these oftentimes can be due to overuse and both uh, are, are very painful. Sometimes they're very swollen. If you push in the area, it, you know, it's very painful. And the treatment for both of these is actually mostly conservative treatment. So putting a lot of ice on there, doing anti-inflammatories like Advil, Motrin, or a, a prescription anti-inflammatory, and then most importantly, physical therapy. And when I say that, I specifically mean stretching. So we really wanna stretch the tendon because the reason why anyone really ever gets Achilles tendonitis is because the tendon is simply too tight. And so it's almost a little bit like plantar fasciitis that we talked about, because it's just, it's two things that are just too tight in your body and causes pain. So if you stretch it, almost everyone gets better. So that's the most important thing to remember for Achilles tendonitis. It's physical therapy, <laughs> stretching, stretching, stretching. Another thing we can use that's really simple are these heel lifts in, uh, in the picture here. And, um, these are just, you know, a couple of bucks, you buy them at the drugstore and you just put them in your shoe. And what it does is it takes that tension off of a really tight Achilles because you're essentially basing your foot by about a centimeter and something as small as that can really take that tension off of a tight Achilles and give you some good pain relief temporarily. Um, and then for patients who have really bad tendonitis where they're hobbling around the they can't uh, you know, even walk a short distance. They often will put patients into uh, a cam walker, that black, big black boot that I use for uh, tendon or for ankle sprains. So I'll use that for about you know, seven to 10 days and it really helps the tendon to kind of rest, to settle down and a lot of their pain does go away. So aside from Achilles tendonitis, we also, well, can have a tendon, Achilles tendon ruptures, right? So these are different. So it's not just tendonitis, not just an inflammation of the tendon, um, but an actual tear of the tendon. And so these tendons tears are usually the highest amongst maybe, you know, 40, 50s um, patients. And usually they are occur in men. And then they usually are uh, patients who we would call sort of like the uh, weekend warrior, right? Who are, you know, they work jobs, but, you know, on the weekend, they're very active. They play basketball, they play soccer or tennis. And, you know, it's when they're playing, they, they feel something pop or give. And, and that's usually the very classic story of an Achilles tendon rupture. Now, there are some risk factors for Achilles tendon ruptures. So these are a couple of ones to be aware of. So one is the use of 
steroids. So whether it's oral steroids or injected steroids, steroids are great for taking away inflammation, but they're not good for tendons. They can cause tendons to really weaken and um, they can tear. Uh, another really common uh, thing that can cause Achilles uh, to become painful is the use of antibiotics. So this class of antibiotics called fluoroquinolones, uh, when you use them, they can be really harmful to tendons. Most of the time, uh, medications like Cipro or Leviquin, those are really common uh, fluoroquinolones that are used for like a urinary tract infection. Um, usually those are the kind of culprits. And I, I definitely would say that many times when I see patients in the office who have Achilles problems because of this, they, they knew about it because their doctor kind of warned them like, look, when you take this, this might have, um, might have some side effects with your tendons. So th that class of medication can cause tendonitis. And then other things that can cause it are like fallen arches. And you can see in this diagram or in this photo here uh, in the left-hand side. So when, you, when your arch fall falls, you have what we call pronations. You can see those red arrows. And so there's a kink in your Achilles tendon. So when you have that kink and then the tendon is essentially stretched a little bit more, you're more likely to to have um, you know, some sort of tendonitis or a pain along the tendon. What's really interesting for most uh, patients who have ruptures though, is that they've never, almost every patient I've had who had a rupture, no one has ever said, oh, I have had a history of tendonitis. There are patients who always say, I have never had any problems with my Achilles. I was just playing tennis and it just popped. So that, that's pretty interesting to, to note. So um, that pa patients who rupture actually you know, don't have a history of previous injury. So when you have a potential Achilles tendon rupture, which means the tendon completely tears, the most common thing we do is this Thompson test. Basically we squeeze the calf and then in an intact Achilles, the, your foot will kind of go uh, uh, up. And then if the tendon is torn, your foot won't move. But I think one of the most underappreciated uh, techniques to diagnose an Achilles is actually just looking at the patient. So I have the patient lie down flat on their stomach and I just look, and this is what I see. And so the one, the ankle on the right-hand side is the intact Achilles because you can actually see the tendon, but on the left-hand side, you can see like, it's just kind of puffy and swollen, right? There's there's no obvious tendon there. So that's the one that's torn. And then you can also tell by looking at the resting tone, um, whereas on the right-hand side, the, the foot is a little bit more pointed. And then on the left hand, it's not really pointed. The foot's just kind of hanging at a 90 degree angle. Also, um, if you feel a gap, that obviously tells you that there's a, a, a tear, but I would say that it's difficult for patients to feel their own gap because of the push pretty hard and um, it can cause pain. So it's something that I usually do in the office. And then I haven't read here that an MRI or an ultrasound is usually not necessary. And um, I say this because I have lots of patients come in with Achilles tendon ruptures who say, oh, well, don't I need an MRI? And again, you know, you could get one, but this isn't a, this is a diagnosis that we can make based on clinical exam. It should be very obvious. And I don't need an MRI or an ultrasound to tell me that. Um, so that's usually, you know, what I tell patients. Um, the history for these 
Achilles tendon ruptures is that patients will usually say, I was playing some sort of sport. I was standing there and I got, I thought I got kicked or I heard a pop and I thought someone hit me in the back of the leg and I look around and no one is around me. No one's even near me and the, everyone's on the other side of the court. So that's a really common thing. Um, patients can um, still walk. They're sort of limping, but they're still able to walk. And then the other thing is, is that, um, you know, after a week or so, your pain really goes away. And, you know, sometimes patients can be fooled into thinking, oh, I'm, I'm better. And I've definitely seen uh, patients and even, you know, uh, other uh, internists who, you know, isn't so familiar with Achilles, perhaps, and um, they, they tell their patients, you know, I think your Achilles is fine, like you can walk, um, you know, you don't even need pain anymore. And, and that's always, um, you, you definitely, you know, if you think there's something wrong, I would say that you're your own best advocate. You want to kind of push and maybe just see a specialist um, because the worst thing is we, we see a patient months out and, and I see that I'm like, oh, good goodness, you know, you, you have Achilles rupture and, and we didn't even know about it. So here's, again, what I was just talking about, some pitfalls of clinical diagnosis is that, you know, sometimes that defect, that gap can be. Uh, masked by some bleeding. So there's bleeding and there's some um, initial scar tissue. So when you feel it, you feel like you can uh, feel the whole length of the Achilles, but in fact, there's actually, uh, there's actually a tear. And then also um, pushing off, being able to kind of push to walk in the next step. Um, sometimes, you know, that can be misleading, but the fact is the Achilles tendon is only one tendon whose function is to push off. And in your foot and your leg, there's lots of other tendons who do can do the same thing. So if you're kind of using push off and being able to walk as the criteria for Achilles tendon ruptures, you'll probably miss a couple. So again, definitely if there's any doubt, you think it might be your Achilles, you'll wanna probably see a specialist. Um, for Achilles tendon rupture treatment options, um, there's really no consensus. So what I tell my patients is when I see them, I say, the bad news is that you have an Achilles rupture, but the good news is no matter which option you choose, whether it's surgery or no surgery, you are going to heal. Um, but the difference in the healing is that with surgery, your tendon is reapproximated back to what was the normal anatomic length, but without surgery, it will heal. But maybe it'll heal a centimeter or two centimeters longer. And the way to make that decision is really the, the lifestyle of the patient. So if you are someone who is very active and it is not okay to be weak or to, you know, to push off and have some weakness or to have a little limp, um, then you might wanna consider having surgery. But if you're a little bit older and you're say, you know, I'm pretty sedentary. I'm not running. I'm not playing basketball anymore. I'm okay with a little bit of weakness. Then it might be better to just leave it alone and treat it without surgery. So um, a couple of things that are contraindications to surgery, meaning like maybe you want to have surgery, but I would say, you know, we probably should not do surgery. So that would include patients who um, who have diabetes, especially if they're poorly controlled. Usually those patients um, have neuropathy, so they're really not able to feel very much. And then also someone who is immune compromised. So let's say 
you recently had chemo or something for cancer. So these are patients who are just going to have a little bit more trouble healing. And so we definitely uh, maybe want to really think about whether surgery is the right option. Because the number one complication of Achilles tendon surgery is wound, um, meaning the incision, the incision that we make to repair these tendons, they don't heal. And that can happen in as high as 20% of patients. And so then if you add in, you know, if you have diabetes or if you have, if you're immune compromised, it can be even higher. So you we definitely don't want to have a complication in surgery. Um, other things that are really um, important is if you have circulation problems, right? You need good blood flow and circulation to actually heal. And so if you don't have good circulation, the likelihood of you being able to heal the wound and heal the tendon are low. So that would be someone who might, we might want to think about whether or not they truly need surgery. And then lastly, I have, um, tobacco usage, so smoking. So smoking is not ideal because the nicotine really constricts your blood vessel. So if you think about the size of the blood vessels in your body, your foot and ankle is the furthest away from your heart. So by the time those blood vessels make it down to your foot or ankle, they're usually the smallest in your body. And so if you add nicotine, which then constricts the blood vessels, then you have even less blood flow. So again, it would lead to higher rates of complication and wound healing. So while there's no consensus as to whether you should treat Achilles tendon ruptures with surgery or without surgery, there are some things that we can all agree on. One is that it is a long recovery. So whether you have surgery for your Achilles or you do not have surgery for your Achilles and you treat it conservatively, it'll take you a good year to really fully recover. Also, regardless of whether surgery or no surgery, you are pretty much in a boot, one of the black boots for about three months. And that's because you're always constantly in the first three months trying to protect that uh, site where it was uh, where it was torn. And then also uh, we know that surgery definitely uh, decreases the risk of a re-rupture, but that's at the risk of a wound problem. So there's pros and cons. So it's definitely uh, helpful to kind of make that decision with your specialist. And so some of my take-home points for today is really just when you are you know, seeing your primary care doctor or specialist, um, I, I feel like it's most important to be able to localize the pain because when patients come in, they're able to tell me it hurts here immediately based on where they're telling me, I can think up of a couple of diagnoses that I'm thinking about in my brain. Whereas if a patient says, oh, it's painful everywhere, <laughs> it's hard for me to kind of, hone down on what I think is really wrong. Um, of course, take a look at shoe wear, right? Um, I always tell patients because I'm a big shoe person, I say, like, you can do most things in moderation, including shoes, right? So there are some fashionable shoes that are great, but you wear them for a short period of time, and then go back to, you know, wider shoes. Also, you want to keep in mind some of the other med medical conditions that you might have, so diabetes, heart disease, circulation, because all of that can contribute to some issues with the foot. And then lastly, and probably the most important when we think about issues with your foot and ankle is what, what is your lifestyle? Are you a pretty active person? 
um, pretty sedentary person, because that is probably the most important thing that helps us to make decisions as to how we treat certain pathologies. And um, that's it. So thank you very much. Great talk, Dr. Chen. Thank you so much. Um, I learned a ton, so that's good. Um, now, uh, so I'm going to jump through these questions a little bit, and, and I'm, I'm not necessarily going to go in orders, but I'll try to get back to everybody. Um, so the first one is kind of related to the, the tendon issues that you were just talking about with the Achilles um, in relation to the fluoroquinolones. Um, is there, a, do we know why that happens or why that association is what it is? And then um, what's kind of the time frame that most people have to worry about after taking it um, when they might be in trouble for, for a tendon issue? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Um, I don't know the actual mechanism of why this specific class of antibiotics, like how that actually works in terms of damaging the tendon. So I, I can look that up, but I, I don't know how that really works. But in terms of the timing, I would say that, you know, once you're on these medications, and I would say most um, of the internists or people prescribe these medications because that's such a well-known side effect, patients are told, hey, watch out for this. And I would say probably, you know, within, you know, anytime six weeks after from the time you take your, you know, your Cipro until about six weeks, you're, you know, looking and, you know, kind of monitoring your, your tendon, your Achilles tendon. Uh, but the good news is that usually, let's say, um, let's say you're on a long course of Cipro and you're on it, when you stop, when that, you know, medication flushes out of your system, usually the uh, tendon pain also kind of starts to go away. But I have definitely seen patients who were, you know, six months later, they have this and they're always asking, well, do you think this could have been related to my antibiotic? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but yeah. But it's typically in a short term afterwards. That is, that is correct. Yeah. Great. Um, another one question um, is related to kind of ankle sprains. Um, and are there specific footwear or exercises that people can do to prevent them? And then kind of a side question to that is if someone's quote unquote prone to ankle sprains, what would you recommend they do if they still want to maintain a, a high activity level? Yeah, great question. So um, in terms of someone who, you know, is prone to ankle sprains, we, you really want to look at what makes them prone to it, right? Is, is it because they've had so many and now their ligaments are really loose and that's why they're rolling their ankles all the time? Is it because the muscles, which are called the perineal tendons or muscles, and whose main function is for ankle stability, is it because those are really weak and they just need a little bit of physical therapy to strengthen them? Or is it because their whole foot structure is one where they have a really high arch? Because patients who have really high arches tend to have a little bit more unstable ankles and they can frequently involve them. So I just mentioned three things that could be that could contribute to recurrent ankle sprains. So I would say in that case, that that would be a great patient that I would see. And I would kind of, you know, try to tease that out and say, what is it? And obviously, if it was, you know, just weakness of the perineal muscles and tendons, I would have the patient go to therapy. Uh, if, if it was just the structure and shape of the foot, there are uh, customized 
orthotics that would really help kind of balance that high arch out. And this is the one instance where I actually feel like custom orthotics are really helpful and it's worth spending $500 for them. Most, most people do not need it, but this is a case where, you know, it might be. Um, and then the first part of the question I think was, are there specific uh, exercises, right? So um, as I mentioned, the perineal tendons are, they're, they're the tendons on the outer side of your ankle and their primary function is for ankle stability. So uh, there are, I mean, you could probably Google them, but there's lots of um, uh, exercises targeted, targeted specifically for those tendons to make them nice and strong. And that that's what you know someone can do on their own. Awesome. Um, and we're gonna try not to get too specific with personalized questions, but I'll, I'll kind of turn some of these into more generalized questions. Um, you talked a little bit about plantar fasciitis and, and kind of that, that band of tissue on the bottom. Are there other things that can cause kind of like lumps or kind of balls of tissue in that area? Um, and, and what's kind of on your differential if someone says they have kind of just like a lump in the middle of that kind of arch portion of their foot? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. I, and I, something that I see all the time as well. So um, the plantar fascia is that really thick structure on the arch of the foot. And so sometimes you can actually have a little growth on it. And um, it's what we call plantar fibroma. So basically, it's just a little ball of scar tissue. Uh, and that will present as a lump or a bump that you'll literally run your hand down along the arch of your foot and you can feel this little bump and you're like, what, what, what is this thing? Um, the good news is that's totally benign. It's very, very common. Lots of patients have it. And when you have it, it it's very slow growing. Like it, you know, might really not do anything for 10 years and it's just, it's there. So that would be one thing. Um, other things, uh, that can contribute to the pain and the heel. I mean, there are nerves in the bottom there. And um, sometimes you can have this nerve kind of, it sort of mimics, you know, heel pain, a plantar fasciitis, but it's actually this nerve that's like really pinched between the muscles and the heel. So oftentimes, you know, we call it like Baxter's nerve. You, you might Google that and, and read about that. But, um, but yeah, that would be another cause of heel pain. Now, what may cause, and, and this is kind of like a, a trio of questions, but um, number one, can you get arthritis in your feet? Um, I think I know the answer to that one. Number two, as you get older, what might make our foot get larger? Um, okay. And number three, um, why do our feet crack or our ankles crack as we kind of move them around? So you can definitely get arthritis, right? You, I mean, anywhere you have a joint, which is two bones and cartilage in the middle, you wear out the cartilage and you have arthritis, right? You can get them anywhere. You can get them in your neck. You can get, there's tons of bones uh, and small little joints in your foot. So definitely arthritis, really, really common. One of the most common things that I see. Um, so that's one. Um, what was the second part? Uh, why do our foot, why does our foot get bigger as we get older? Oh, right. What right. Might, what, okay. what's, what's causing that? Yes. Yes. So shapes of our feet will change as we age. And so, um, a, a common structural cause is, well, you know, you'll see patients over time, their arch will start to fall. So sometimes as the arch kind of falls, like the foot kind of like it has, you know, it turns. And so, you know, sometimes 
patients will perceive like, oh, like my, my foot's bigger, I have to get a wider shoe. Uh, that's one thing. Um, other, other things are just, you know, you know, especially for women, right? Um, I, I know that my feet really widened after I had my kids, um, you know, with childbirth, um, you know, the, the inner metatarsal ligaments, the ligaments that hold the, the metatarsals together, they, they kind of stretch. And then all of a sudden your foot's just like a lot wider than it used to be. Um, so those are really common causes. And, you know, I, I would say that if you're noticing something kind of pretty dramatic where, where, or other people are noticing that. And sometimes, you know, if, if it's us, we, we sometimes don't notice, but if like people around you, it's like, oh, why, why does your foot turn in like that? Usually that's something to look at, right? Um, um, and, and maybe just see a specialist. Um, and then the third, oh, the What's third the cracking? cracking? What's the cracking in our foot? Is that something to be worried about? Is that, what is that? That's right. Yeah. So I, I tell patients, um, any, time or anywhere in your body where you have joints, which are moving, right? And then you have tendons and ligaments kind of gliding on top of them. It is very normal to have clicking, cracking, snapping, whatever sound you feel like they make, totally normal. Most of the time, those sounds, they, they're not painful. It's just like cracking your knuckle. Um, they're, they're, they're fine. Um, the only time we worry about clicking, snapping, or whatever, is when it's really painful. Like every single time I, he I feel this clicking, snapping, it hurts me. Or like something just feels off and I have to bend the toe down. Th those things we definitely want to investigate further. But in general, any sort of um, sounds or you, you might hear, and if it's not painful, uh, it is nothing to worry about. Great. Um, what might be a, um, sorry, we're jumping around a little bit, but um, what might be a cause of kind of, I think you talked about this a little bit in your talk, but maybe going through maybe some of the other things that you think about when someone's having numbness kind of at the ball of their foot, um, you know, and, and what some, some treatments might be for that kind of forefoot numbness. Right. Yeah. So I would say if you come in and you tell me that I have numbness, um, one of the first things that I will think about is the potential neuroma, right? The, the little nerve that gets pushed, um, pinched in between the metatarsal heads. Um, but usually that's very specific. You'll be able to say here where my finger is, that is where I have numbness. But if it's more diffuse and you say, I, I can't put one finger on it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere on my foot. Then we think of other nerve um, impingements. So one thing could be, you know, if you have diabetes, you might have neuropathy, which means there's little tiny nerves that innervate the very, um, poor, you know, kind of distal parts of your foot. They, they don't work very well, or they're really hyperactive, and so they lead to this like numb feeling. So that that could be one thing. Um, there are other uh, nerve impingements. So, for instance. Uh, tarsal tunnel. So I'm sure everyone heard has heard of carpal tunnel, right? That's this in your hand. So you have a very similar nerve that goes down in the ankle. And, and then if that nerve gets pinched, you'll have a certain distribution where things are numb. So those are kind of the things that I think about. The treatment, I'm guessing, depends on what the... Right, exactly. Yeah. So the treatment depends on what it is. So if it's usually um, a neuropathy, then that may be more global, like looking at, you know, we may talk to your internist and say, you know, what, why is this patient having neuropathy? And usually 
uh, I would say there's no surgery for neuropathy, right? Because it's just the nerves are, are really hyperactive. So some of it is med medical treatment. Um, if it is a very specific nerve that's pinched, um, oftentimes we can do a decompression. So exactly like carpal tunnel release, where you open up the, the thick tissue overlying the tendon, or sorry, the nerve and the wrist, we can do a very similar surgery in the ankle and we can release that really thickened covering of that nerve and things start to feel better. I think there's one point maybe that, you know, difference between the podiatrist and the more global orthopedic approach to things is kind of working your way up from the foot and, and not necessarily just focusing on the foot, but really trying to figure out what the issue at hand is. Mm -hmm. um, and then also I just add on to that, the neuropathy is something that sometimes there is not a specific cause for it. Um, some patients can just get neuropathy and it's not that you have diabetes. It's not that you have anything. It's just kind of you just get neuropathy. Um, and so that's, that's something that can happen as well. Um, okay. Uh, do you have, or are you willing to give any recommendations for kind of decent footwear, um, just for preventing foot pain and injuries? Is there a specific, I, I don't know if you want to say brands, but, um, maybe just like if you're looking for a reasonably priced shoe, what, what are, what are your recommendations to patients? So I general in general, right. You want to look for a shoe that has a pretty wide toe box, right? So you don't want a shoe that's pretty narrow where it's like squeezing all your, your, your toes together because that, that's a perfect way to actually cause pain. So something that's a little bit wider. Um, you also want to look at the sole of the shoe. So I know that a few years ago, there was this craze of like minimal shoes, right? So I saw a lot of runners wearing those uh, bike those shoes that have the little um like the rubber shoes that have like the the toes like individual and 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 they were really lightweight and they were running and everyone's getting stress fractures so you want something that's really kind of nice and well padded and um with a nice footbed so something that's going to cushion everything and then ideally um I, I i like shoes whether they're dress shoes or um, gym shoes that have straps on them, right? That like strap itself onto your foot because shoes like flip-flops or sandals that, you know, you just kind of slide your foot in and walk around. You, you may not realize it, but your foot actually has to work a lot harder to grip that shoe and to keep it on your foot. So flip-flops are usually kind of like the worst, the ones with the little thong like between the big toe and the second toe. So I always recommend uh, wide, wide toe box, a uh, good supportive sole. Um, and, and, you know, I feel like the thicker, the better, um, because it's more supportive and more cushioned. So it will kind of prevent a lot of the things like plantar fasciitis, like I talked about, where you're, you know, it, it's because you don't have enough of your own fat there. So you really have to cushion it. Um, and then shoes that have some sort of uh, strap that goes, you know, that can kind of keep itself on your foot instead of like easily falling off. So those are some, some of the common qualities I would say in good shoe wear. And then kind of in a similar kind of thing for that in, in an urban setting, or if you have, if you're trying to just get, get your steps in, um, what are good surfaces and what are bad surfaces? And, and in particular, what about like the beach? versus like rubber tracks versus grass versus concrete versus what right yeah yeah that's a that's actually a great question so you know what i would say is in a young or not even young in a healthy person that has no foot and ankle issues 
no injuries or anything. I mean, they, they can tolerate any of those. Right. But what I would say is, um, the more uneven the surfaces are, the harder it is on your foot and ankle. So if you are someone who kind of frequently rolls your ankle or occasionally does, and and sometimes you could just be walking down the street and there was nothing, you didn't step on anything and your ankle just buckles, then walking on an uneven surface um, will be really difficult because you're, you know, you're, you're more likely or you're more prone to maybe having an injury. So, you know, for, for those patients, maybe sticking to kind of flat surfaces where um, your foot doesn't have to adjust to that uneven quality. Um, and, you know, obviously it may be a, a good idea to, you know, seek the help of physical therapist, um, because if you feel like walking on uneven surfaces is really difficult, or um, sometimes patients will say, when I'm going hiking, I'm walking on, you know, just terrain, uh, my, I get really sore, like on the outer side of my ankle. I, see, I hear that all the time. And that's because they're, you're working those perineal tendons so hard. And so again, so that, that might mean that it's a little bit weak. And so going to physical therapist will be particularly helpful. But um, I mean, I don't have any specific recommendations in terms of, you know, harder concrete versus kind of a rubber surface. Um, I, I, I think, I think obviously in a rubber surface, there's, um, there's less impact, right? On a hard concrete floor, all of that impact is really, you know, harsh and goes right into your foot. Whereas on a softer um, turf, you, you, you know, you, there's more of a cushion. I think that kind of answers one of the other questions, which was when you're jumping or, or walking, is most of the force going through the bones or is it going through the soft tissues around the bones? I, I would question. say both, but, but definitely yeah, both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both. Kind of yeah. the weight has to go through the bones, but there's counter forces going through the tendons that are keeping you from falling over, I guess would be the best yeah. way to put it. Um, this kind of goes with, so say um, if you're prone to injuries around the foot, does wearing like an ankle brace or high top shoes or very tight shoes that are kind of giving you a ton of support, is that going to make you more prone to those injuries when you're not wearing the tissues? Or are you going to start getting weak or is it okay to use kind of supportive devices? Yeah, no, the, actually that's another great question. Cause I have this, these are questions that I, I, I feel like I have with my patients all the time. Um, so, so my view on braces, ankle braces, high top shoes, all these types of things is that they are great, but they should be used in the short term. So it shouldn't be like, oh, I rolled my ankle. And so now every time I play basketball, I have to wear my ankle brace. That's not our goal here, right? Because in some ways, the more you wear these things, it's an external support. Um, your, your brain or your body kind of knows there's something there. So I think that in the long run, it will make some of those muscles whose job it is to actually provide ankle stability a little bit weaker. So I usually tell my patients that the, you, you should, you know, not wear braces um, in the long term, just maybe for a month or so. And if you feel you can't get off of the brace, then, you know, we, we definitely need to be more aggressive about rehab and getting those muscles to be stronger. Um, I, a good analogy that I heard 
um, in one of the other talks, I think at a foot and ankle meeting was one of the speakers that said, you know, if you were in a car accident and you, you know, got whiplash, you know, the, and, and you had some neck injury and you wore one of those neck foam braces, right? You know, when people see you, they're like, okay, yes, we get it. But, but if someone wears that for like a year straight because they had this injury, you, you would think there was something weird, right? It's like you, you want those neck muscles to start working. <laughs> so I liken that to the brace of the ankle is that you don't want to use the brace constantly. It's just for a short term. And, and to the person's direct question, it was kind of like if you're wearing a very kind of tight, supportive work boot all day long, is that going to make you weaker? Um, and I would kind of say, I, I, maybe, maybe if you don't mind, like, I think there's a little bit of cross training to everything, right? You want to kind of mix and match it up. You don't want to be doing the same thing all the time. And you want to keep all the muscles kind of on their toes, so to speak. So um, maybe yes, in terms of her question, if you have a super supportive high top shoe that maybe those ankle muscles aren't getting worked as much. But, you know, when you're off the job wearing something else, you're probably getting enough as long as you're in an active, healthy lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Um, okay, just a couple more. Um, what you didn't really talk too much about kind of bumps and things on the top of your foot. What might be something that people experience kind of above the arch, kind of midfoot bumps? What 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 could those be from? Yeah, um, again, great question. So um a common cause of you know bumps on the top of the foot are, are actually bone spurs, right? What what patients perceive like, oh, I have this bump and you know, I don't know what it is. When, when I tell them I get an x-ray, you know, it's a bone spur, they're kind of like, are, really? <laughs> this is a bone spur? And, and yes, um, because the thing is, if you look at your own feet, uh, the top of your feet is, there, there's not a lot of soft tissue coverage. It's not like our hips, you know, where there's like a big muscle, you know, there, right? Um, or even the shoulder, a big muscle. Um, so the top of your foot is really just, you know, bone. Uh, there's a couple, there's some tendons that are under um, the skin. Um, and, then, and then there's your skin and that's it. So any bumps on your bone that you might form um, from, you know, wear and tear or whatever, you're going to see that as, you know, bumps. So that's one common thing. Another common thing is um, ganglion cysts, right? So cysts are basically these uh, fluid-filled pouches, totally benign. They usually arise from a, a tendon because the tendon has a sh sheath, which is a tunnel that the tendon runs through. And then there's usually lubricating fluid that lubricates the tendon. So sometimes the next to that area, you can have a little pocket of this excess fluid. And then same thing if it's next to a joint, uh, because joints have lubricating fluid, you can have this pocket of uh, fluid from the joint. And so that can create a ganglion cyst. I would say that those are probably some of the two most common causes of, you know, lumps and bumps. And both are really quite benign, but, you know, I, definitely important to, um, you know, if you have it, sometimes it gives you a little peace of mind to know what it's from. So. Is barefoot walking one of the risks to getting some of these lumps and bumps or arthritis in the foot or what, what's your take on barefoot walking? Um, Barefoot, I mean, I, I think barefoot walking is fine. The, the one patient population that uh, I think should avoid that are those patients who are neuropathic, right? So um, they just 
don't feel as well, right? And most of those patients will have diabetes, but I do see a good number of patients who have neuropathy and they don't feel as well, but it's sort of like idiopathic, meaning there's just no medical explanation on why they have it, yet they have it. So if you can't feel your foot very well, walking barefoot is pretty dangerous because if you step on something, you're just not going to feel it. Um, so that would be the one group that I would say barefoot walking is probably not great. In your time kind of working with the ballet, what were kind of the most common injuries that you saw? Um, that, we'll start with that one. Okay. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, so one of the most common things that I, so, so bunions were really common, right? So in a lot of the ballerinas, right? Or really anyone, right? Uh, they go on point. And I, I should have actually had an x-ray of what your foot looks like when you're in point shoes, because it's literally just, you know, standing on the tips of your toes. Um, so that really causes a lot of deformities in your butt, in your big toe. So the, the dancers can, you know, get bunions. They also get hammer toes, right? Cause they're toes that start to get really curled and crooked. Um, so those are common and, and really the, the treatment while those dancers are dancing and they have a, you know, dancing career is to just live with it. Right. So every single dancer I saw had their little bag of pads, tapes, band-aids, cushions, really everything, right? Because they're like, they, they know that, or, um, you know, have been told that, you know, if they fix their bunion or the toes, I mean, number one, if they go back to dancing, it's just going to come back, but also, um, it, it can be career ending. Like if their feet have changed because you've corrected it, they, they can't dance the way that they did previously. So a lot of forefoot problems. And then a really common, um, problem for, uh, dancers, especially ballet dancers, are, um, is this condition called an ostrigonum. So basically, it's I didn't talk about it, but behind your ankle is um, this area where sometimes you can have a little extra bone. And then almost all of us, because we're not ballet dancers, we never even know it. It's just an extra bone that's there. It's no big deal. But if you are um, a ballet dancer and you have to go on point, that little bone can get pushed between like the tibia. It basically gets crunched a little bit in the back of the ankle. And that actually sometimes prevents their uh, toes or their ankles from being totally on point and being perfectly, um, you know, vertical. And so we actually had lots of uh, dancers who ended up getting that bone removed. So we are, you know, it's an ostrigonum excision and um, recovery is pretty quick for that, but it, it definitely, it'll allow the ballerina to get a better form when, especially when they go on point. So those are some of the common things that it's really fascinating. Um, also just to see the mindset of these dancers, right? Um, Cause I've never like, I been to the ballet, but you actually talk to them and, and you know, it is, it is their life. <laughs> Um, and then, okay, last one. So, and then this is kind of on a totally different, different subject, something you haven't talked about yet, but say you've had one of these surgeries and you have hardware in your foot, um, does it need to come out? Are there complications to leaving screws or plates or, um, sutures in the, in the foot? Yep. Yeah. So if the hardware is placed appropriately, which means it's not too long, 
Um, it, you know, it's not like part of it is in the joint. <laughs> um, if it's kind of where it should be, uh, I would say most of the time, no reason to take them out. I mean, they, it is correct. You don't need them there, right? After they've done their job of holding your foot or ankle together, um, after it's all healed, it's just extraneous. So certainly they can be removed, but it is an actual surgery. So if it's not bothering you, then I would say leave it alone. But on the other hand, if you have pain in that area and you know, you're told that, well, it's all healed, but it's still very painful, or sometimes um, patients will say, I, I can feel the screw, like the bump on, you know, where I had surgery. Um, also, I have patients who um, are big skiers, right? So those ski boots are super, super tight, so hard to get your foot into it. So especially if they have some hardware and they can feel it when, when they're in a really tight ski boot, it really hurts them because that boot's pushing down so hard. So those are some good reasons to potentially get them out. But if none of that is you and you just happen to have some hardware and feels pretty good, um, I would say no reason to try to take them out. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, that, was, that was really good. Thank you so much, Dr. Chen. That was great. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.